Hello and welcome to this month's Exit Podcast, coming to you on Sunday the 17th of October 2021. My name's Fiona Stewart. And I'm Philip Nitschke. And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series. Now this month's podcast is celebrating the 30th anniversary since former Vice President of the Dutch Supreme Court, Hugh Drion, wrote a letter, an innocent little letter to the editor of the Dutch newspaper NRC. In this letter... Hugh Drion advocated that older people should have the right to self-determination at the end of life and that this should be treated as a separate discussion to that of the medical problem within voluntary euthanasia legislation. Now we're talking 30 years ago, so we're talking October 1991. The Northern Territory legislated for the Rights of the Terminally Ill Act in 1996. The Dutch didn't actually legalise euthanasia until... 2001, is that right? Yes, 2001. And so this issue of self-determination at the end of life for older people, so this is people who are not seriously ill and not suffering in any way other than being old, has been a long time coming. It's been discussed for now 30 years in the Netherlands and obviously to varying degrees a little bit less in other countries, but it's certainly been an issue that's been front of mind for Exit since Exit was actually founded by Philip in 1997. So we wanted to go back to the source this week and actually look at Hugh Drion's letter. What was it? What did this letter say some 30 years ago, a man clearly before his time? What was it that he said that actually started a movement and started a public discourse on whether older people should have the right to die at a time and place of their choosing, irregardless of their state of health? So here we go. Hugh Drion's letter was titled The Right of Older People to Decide for Themselves. And he writes, There is no doubt in my mind that many old people would find great peace of mind if they had the means of at, if they had the means at their disposal to end life in an acceptable manner at a moment that is appropriate to them. So said the former vice president of the Dutch Supreme Court, Hugh Drion, in a letter to the editor of NRC on october nineteenth, nineteen ninety one. Professor Drion wrote Of course our society already provides many means by which people can end their lives. There are trains that you can throw yourself into. There are buildings that you can fall down from. There are canals and rivers to drown yourself in. There is rope one can buy, and I'll leave it at that. But these are not very attractive means, neither for those who who have to use them, nor for those around them and for society as a whole. Some members of our society have more acceptable means, take doctors and pharmacists, for example, but for the majority of people such means are not available. Their only hope is to travel to a distant land in the hope that, more or less surreptitiously, they will obtain, succeed in obtaining the substances needed. That's pretty much the current situation. What is it that maintains this, this situation as acceptable? So far as society is concerned, most people are denied the means by which they can end their lives in a not-too-repulsive way. My question, however, is whether such a policy that makes the act of suicide as, as abhorrent as possible can be argued to be justified. So, Philip, we jump to today, and what's this week's news about Dutch organisation Cooperation Last Will? They are the group that advertised Middle X, promoted Middle X, and they're probably the most militant group of the Dutch associations in terms of promoting exactly what Drion's on about here. Yes, I don't know whether it's necessarily the fact that they're militant, but they do have a philosophy which pretty much enshrines what Hugh Drion outlined so many years ago, and they've been quite uh, successful in pursuing that goal, putting it out there in the public, uh, having a debate about this issue, about whether or not we're talking about 
the ability to end one's life as a human right rather than a privilege for the sick, which is what Dutch law currently enshrines. So they're an important group, and what happened this week, and we've, we've talked about them in the past and what's happened to them as they've talked about middle X powder and getting their members access to it, but what's happened to them this week is that the president, Joss, has been actually arrested and his house searched and he's lost uh, apparently laptops and certainly some quantity of so-called middle X powder as the Dutch prosecuting authorities suggested that they were now looking at whether or not the organisation could be considered a criminal organisation through their pursuit of their programme of informing their members on availability of this option. So how has this struck you as a, now I guess, a medium long-term resident of the Netherlands? Well, I've been taken aback by it. We've come to, and we've talked about this before, the Dutch have got a international reputation of being one of the most progressive nations on end-of-life choices through the implementation of their legislation, which is medicalised laws. You've got to be sick. But the Dutch have shown a certain flexibility in the evolution of that legislation since it came in in 2001. They've lowered the age. They've allowed it to be possible to get help to die from a doctor if you're not terminally ill. Uh, They've been able to include sometimes uh, people that have got psychiatric maladies and problems which can't be resolved to, to be able to be eligible for their legislation. That's quite flexible, so to the point where many countries around the world have almost suggested the Dutch are out of control. But when you look at it closely, it's a very controlled piece of legislation. And when someone, an organisation like CLW, come along and try to broaden it and say, no, no, we don't want medical law, we want this to be considered as a human right, and start talking about the means and methods by which that might be achieved, they start being attacked. And I think it's very disappointing. Okay, so if we jump back now to Hugh Drion's letter, he continues, What for the old man who thinks he's lived long enough and who dreads a future life of continual decay? I do know the division between no old and not so old is not a sharp one. Those who are 20 will draw the line between old and not so old differently to a 75-year-old. But that does not alter the fact that a person who ends his life at the age of 75 can, in general, know better what kind of life he risks cutting short far more than a 20-year-old. Now, we had the case of David Goodall, who died some three years ago now in Switzerland. He was 104. It was a pretty clear-cut case, wasn't it? Yes, I think what Hugh Drion is pointing to in this part of his letter is the idea that Whereas one can talk in principle about people having this as a human right, the ability to end one's life, he's suggesting that you need a certain amount of life experience before such a decision can be taken seriously or be given given credit. So he was suggesting that young people might think this way, but you've got to have a certain lived experience before you're in a position to make that final decision. I think he ended up suggesting that there was a certain age at which people should be issued with an end-of-life pill, which became known as the Dreon pill. So what's a cut-off age for you? I mean, he, he's advocating, he keeps talking about 75-year-olds. Well, a cut-off age for me personally is my, my, my criteria is that a person simply has to be an adult. Uh, that means over the age of 18. That's my personal position. Now, the organisation Exit has, for various pragmatic reasons, argued along the same lines that you've got to have a certain amount of life experience and this a rather, I think, arbitrary age of 50 has been decided upon within the organisation as a reasonable time at which a person can make this decision. And so our organisation, Exit International, 
tends to say, well, if you're over 50, you should have access to information, and more than that, you should have access to the means that you can keep safely stored in the cupboard to be able to take the step of divesting yourself of your life whenever you like and for whatever reason. I mean, 18 is clearly politically unpalatable. I mean, that's just political suicide to say that anyone over the age of 18 and and then you always say oh yeah oh well but you can drive a car and you can be sent off to war and given a gun you can own a gun that's my argument and i agree with it i mean i i I find the 50 year old uh, (coughs) criteria that our organization has accepted being rather onerous one that i don't necessarily support i know it's a bit crazy because i mean we co-wrote the peaceful pill handbook i was 35 when we wrote well, we yeah. wrote it. Well, I mean, so here I, I am saying that I wrote a book, but now you, you can't but, read it at the same age that I wrote it. You've got to be 50 because that's, like, that's the only politically feasible thing we can do. Yeah, I look, this argument goes on and there's no easy answers to it, but I still think that that's a valid point to make, that if we're quite happy as a state, as a government, to send people off to kill people in the context of being part of a military organisation and governments reserve that right to run armies and the like, to then simply say, yes, you can go off and take someone else's life legally, but you cannot have information about how to end your own life because you're not old enough until you get to some... Well, in the case of most countries, you never get that position of being able to get legal support to take that step. So I find that rather there's a uh, issue there which is a difficult one. I'm, I'm not happy with that idea. I think... Rational adult is the criteria. Okay, so returning to the Drion letter, Drion writes, the medical problem, that is those who are seriously ill, receive a lot of attention in discussion of the euthanasia problem, much more attention than those who are old. That the great, usually unexpressed concern of many old people, however, is that there will come a time for them when they can no, long, will no longer be able to take care of themselves in the most basic things in, of life due to physical and or mental deterioration. Removing that fear as much as is possible seems to me to be an essential obligation for a society in which the number of old people is increasing. Yeah, I think it's a very perceptive comment that he's making there. The distinction between medical reasons for providing perhaps this help that was needed to end one's life and what we might describe as social reasons, in this case a social reason a person's getting old and they want the comfort of knowing that they've got this choice. No particular suffering, no particular illness, but the knowledge that they have the ability to take this step is immensely reassuring, and we see that within our members all the time. They don't want to use a tablet. They don't want the Drion pill or the peaceful pill in the cupboard to use it. They just want to know it's there. Now, you actually said that when you... You almost, you almost fell into founding the organisation Exit back in 1997 because you said after the rights of the Terminal Ill Legislation Act was overturned, you said people kept still approaching you. What, what were they wanting when they were contacting you for help? Well, under that piece of legislation, the world's first in the Northern Territory had to be very. You had to be terminally ill. There were a lot of medical uh, criteria and requirements, safeguards, so-called. Difficult to get people through that legislation, but we did manage to get and help four people to take the step of ending their lives. The law was overturned then. People kept saying, though, because they realised that this was now a piece of legislation had been in place. People started to think more about this and people contacted us, contacted me, saying, well, what can I do now that that piece of legislation has been overturned? What are my options? But were these people who were seriously ill or were just 
The some, well, the some well were. worried elderly. Look, there some were. We had a, a, a division. Many, some people came along and they were sick and they said, oh, my goodness, the law's gone, but I'm sick and suffering. What can I do? Other people came along and said, I just think that it would be a good idea to know what I could do if I became sick. It became clearer and clearer to me that what we were talking about here was something far broader than what was, uh, which was, what was being uh, dealt with under that piece of legislation. People wanted the right to take the step that it was a human right, my thinking changed, that it was a human right, that there were plenty of good reasons for ending a life which were not associated with sickness and suffering. There were good social reasons that people came along and suggested to me were the reasons they wanted to take the step. And the best way to acknowledge that was to say, this is a human right. This is not part of some restrictive medical uh, criteria. Now, returning to Drion's letter, just to recap, he says that removing the fear, this is the fear of older people not being able to take care of themselves, removing that fear is as much as possible, seems to me an essential obligation for a society in which the number of old people is increasing. This obligation will not be met by merely providing care and nursing for old people who can no longer look after themselves. The provision of such care is, of course, essential, but it is not sufficient. A care home is far from a satisfactory solution for those who do not want to live a life being cared for by others. To say that these people must jump into the water or jump off a block of flats or buy rope if they want to end their lives serves no one and nothing, not even the sanctity of life. People never say it like that, of course, but in practice it doesn't make much difference. Yeah, I think it's quite a... No, again, it's very perceptive comments about this this whole issue that trying to tell someone, don't worry, pat them on the head and say, we can always send you to a nursing home where you'll be well cared for and looked after, provides very little comfort for people who come along and say, but I want the means to be able to say, now's enough, the time is right and I want to be able to die. Simply saying you're going to be looked after by some paternalistic institution that's in place by a compassionate state isn't enough. People want more than that. It's necessary, perhaps, for people who want it, but it's certainly not sufficient. We want more than that. People want this right to be able to take that final step of divesting themselves of their life. And But this is exactly what CLW have been trying to do by making sure all their members have got middle X, sodium azide, and look at the trouble it's got them into. Yeah, well, that's, uh, this is what seems to me of great interest is the fact that we're seeing the state push back on this. They're not happy. Many people within the... Uh, governing institutions find such a such a concept unpalatable whereas they prepared to say well okay in the situation very special situation of people that are very seriously ill vetted extensively by a panel of doctors under very very specific circumstances then we might just and you're just about to die anyway we might just come at the idea of allowing you to shorten that process a little bit but take that far broader approach and say but this is a fundamental right for the individual. That's one step too far. And if an organisation like CLW tries to pursue that, and in practical ways by coming up with a substance like sodium azide, working out ways the members of their organisation... Well, this is not some little backroom group. This is a major organisation. And making sure their members know about sodium azide and how it works and how to get it suddenly you find the state really getting annoyed, upset, to the point of actually arresting the chairman, suggesting that maybe this is actually a criminal organisation, whatever the hell that means, and imposing all sorts of suggested uh, penalties that might take place. So this is, I suppose, trying to 
send a shot across the bow, send a message that the state isn't happy with that. They're happy with you accepting this as a, as a, as a privilege if you're very sick, but not as a right. So Drion continues, what do I want then? My ideal is that old people should be able to go to a doctor, either their general practitioner or a designated physician, to obtain the means by which, at the moment that is right for them, they can put an end to their life in a way that is acceptable to themselves and to those around them. That moment may be defined by the prospect of pain so severe that life is unbearable. But it may also be that the elderly person recognises that the time has come when he can no longer take care of himself, a time when he will have to find a nursing home where he will become dependent for care on others and where he has to spend his last days among only old people. Now, we're, no, we're never suggesting that nursing homes are not great places or that there's not a, a very good role in society for them. But we're, we're looking at people who don't want to go into an institution, they don't want to live out their lives, their final days in an institution, and they want to maintain their independence now, what's interesting is that there is such a thing in the Netherlands called the Completed Life Bill, and it is still before the Parliament. What is it, Philip? Well, it seems to follow on a little bit. He's suggesting, Madrion was suggesting there, that you should be able to go off to see your doctor and be given a tablet. Uh, and the suggestion was that this not necessarily be associated with any particular illness, that this was, in fact, you're right, the completed life bill that's Hang on, been... just before you go on, it'd be interesting to see now if he still thought you should have to go to a doctor or you would go to a, some sort of state dispensary of of the the lethal powder or mixture or whatever. I mean, he would, he would, this was in the very early days of him even yeah, I was surprised putting these ideas out there. I mean, at, at Exit, for example, my position here is that you should be able to go to a vending machine and get these and get these drugs, provided you can provide some evidence that you've got mental capacity. So I'm envisaging in the future scenario where you would type in answers to the questionnaire, prove that you're a person of sound mind, and then be able to get for a nominal fee the lethal drugs from a machine. And it was a bit like that in that science fiction futurist film, Children of God, wasn't it? Yeah. There was billboards, yeah, billboards up. Take, do the right thing and take your quietus. Quietus was the drug. Yeah, that sounds like a futuristic, uh, one of these rather dystopian, futuristic things that people are so. Was that with Michael Caine? Was he supposedly in that? frightened of? But I didn't find it a particularly troubling concept. And but that again, was linked to like environmental catastrophe. Like the end of the world was literally. Upon us. I mean, yes, it might not be that far not, away anyway. Not too dissimilar from the actual catastrophes that we're <laughs> yeah. facing in the globe right now. So yeah, you might think funny. that the days of quietus coming along and it being issued are perhaps not that far away. So maybe Dreon's dream is a little closer than we think, despite the pushback currently from the Dutch government. So the completed life bill? Well, that seemed to me to be a, a quite innovative attempt to try and put some workable, practical I- ideas Legal framework to yeah. the Dreon concept, uh, whereby I think under her initial plan was that a people politician over a Pia Dixter, Pia Dixter from the, the party D sixty six. Yeah, she's no longer there. She was suggesting the law's still around, currently supposedly being debated one day, but it was an attempt to try and remove it as remove this idea of providing assistance away from just being just for, available for people that were sick and satisfied medical criteria into a much broader criteria well, than simply adult. age. If you're old it? enough, no other reason needed. You're old enough, but there were, some things, there were some suggestions as part of that law that you would have to somehow or other present yourself to a committee and have that committee decide whether or not you're eligible, which I didn't like. But nevertheless, it was an attempt to take it into that idea of being a 
closer to the fact that it was a right and not just a medical privilege. I mean, and it will be interesting to see what happens because I was reading in the Dutch paper just this week is this is the longest process for talks to form a government in Dutch history. The Dutch election was back in March and the politi- there's still no government. It's still a caretaker government in the mm. Netherlands. But all the parties that look like forming government as part of this coalition, they are all supportive of the completed life bill. It's only if the two Christian parties get let in, who are openly hostile to it, Mm. that the completed life bill will continue to sit there and go nowhere. But this may be the term of government, the next four or five years, where there is actually movement on this bill. Well, that makes it even more perplexing why there's been this recent, very recent move against, quite dramatic move against CLW. But does that put pressure, you think, on the legislative process? Oh, no, no. I'm not too sure what message they're trying to send, but it certainly sent a message and made people feel quite quite fearful. It's, it's also part of... We should broaden this out, too, because it's not just happening here in the Netherlands where these sorts of pushback strategies are often coming hand-in-hand hand along with moves towards giving people medicalised options at the end of life, and that would take me into making a comment about these new laws we're seeing being suggested in New South Wales in Australia, where I've never noticed it before, but they've got a whole stack, a whole suite of penalties that are coming along with it for people who step even a small way outside of the very rigid requirements that are coming in with that legislation. In that new law, you've got to be terminally ill, a stack of other things, etc., 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 and then you'll be able to get help to die. But move one step outside of that, and you'll find yourself subject to very savage new legislative penalties. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, for example, if you were... There's, they're introducing specific legislation to, to stop the distribution about substances that might enable a person to be able to end their own life. That's so I think you had the exact terminology was advertising poisons as end-of-life agents. Yeah, advertising poisons as end-of-life agents. So that's, that's, not, that's not gunning at the person who's seeking to use the legislation. It's gunning at the people around, like doctors or whoever, like people, maybe maybe even Philip Nitschke? Well, I think it's the gunning at people and organisations like Exit. I see it as being, they say, well, you can have legislation in Australia, in New South Wales, but those people who have been in the past advocating this is a fundamental human right and talk about the means by which you might obtain this privilege, such as those who talk about substances like sodium azide or sodium nitrite, well, that's now going to be a very specific crime and attract a very specific penalty. So it makes it quite difficult for exit. What's a specific penalty of... Seven years, years, I think. Seven years in prison? Well, they've got got life imprisonment for anyone who acts outside the particular... Life imprisonment, the strongest penalty that the state in Australia can issue for people who act outside of that legislative environment, that is by offering help to die if you're not a person who satisfies all the criteria and you're not a medical registered doctor. So is it my way or the highway? Pretty much, and mm. uh, and it's again this idea you can have it as a, you can have this option end of life choice piece of legislation, but accompanying it is that it's going to be made very rigidly a medical phenomena controlled by the medical profession. Anyway, back to Drion's letter. Drion continues, It is of course good that such nursing homes exist and it is good that there are people who are content to be dependent upon others. But many old people who go to such homes to visit elderly relatives or friends find it almost terrifying to think that they too could end up there. These people have only one thought. 
if only I could be spared that. And in this, that is taken to mean not only the bleakness of this institutionalised existence, but also one's loss of dignity. Why then should such older people not be allowed to take matters into their own hands to save themselves from becoming heavily burdensome on the community? It was a, it was a great concern to Hugh Drian. I, when I spoke to him and, and when I met him, uh, he again talked about that as a particular concern and preoccupation himself, worried about that as a possibility, didn't want that to take place and saw real benefits for himself he could see himself that this was something he wanted and he could see no reason why other elderly people wouldn't benefit from the idea too. So he argued very passionately for this ability to have a choice if you did not want to take the option of some sort of caring institution that you could take the step of ending your life. So is there a cost to society? I mean, I sort of got a few things to say here. When we were talking at the Sydney Writers' Festival a few years ago now, I remember the feminist Lynn Siegel got up. She, well, she, was, she wasn't exactly supportive of end-of-life choices and she was saying that dying is relational, that there's always victims when a person chooses to take their own life in whatever context. But I mean, but this is something that Switzerland's been dealing adequately with. It might not always be comfortable for the children, adult children concerned. Well, the dying is relational. I mean, I suppose that's a pretty statement of something which is quite obvious. Obviously, if you die, it affects other people. But to then try and extend that into saying, yes, so therefore one cannot take that step of ending your own life unless you get effectively the permission of all these other people strikes me as being one taking it one step too far. Look, I don't mind it if people believe that and think that way, but I don't think that way. And I wouldn't like to see legislation which would use that as a reason why a person can't take this step. The step must be decision the decision must be made by the individual and that individual's decision must be given priority. The fact that it might affect other people closely associated with them is obviously true, but that shouldn't be used as a reason why no one should be able to take this step. So I heard that argument at the time and it didn't uh, I didn't see much I have no sympathy for with it. Now, Hugh Drion concludes his letter saying, why not allow old people the peace of mind that comes from knowing that they are able to prevent such an existence, this is the existence in the nursing home, totally dependent, an existence that is un- they feel is unacceptable to them, to go before one's time has come at the moment, at the moment when they want to. It is impossible to predict how often such an opportunity, if offered, would actually be used. It can hardly be doubted that the number of suicides by elderly people would increase, but is that a reason to deny old people the possibility and peace of mind? When one meets a reasonably happy 60-year-old person and hears that he or she attempted suicide at the age of 30, one will think to them himself, it is good that their attempt failed. But stop by a care home to visit an elderly friend or relative, you will find too many hapless people silently staring into a corner or mumbling something unintelligible, often unable to eat by themselves, relying on caretakers for all their needs. Who would not think it is a good thing that none of these people had the opportunity to end their life earlier? What I'm advocating here assumes greater autonomy for older people than has hitherto been considered in discussions about euthanasia. Perhaps there is something to be said for restricting the option of advocated here, at least to begin with, to the elderly living alone. A a suicide of a non-single person does affect greatly the life of the person with whom one lives. On the other hand, the case of cohabitation, the danger of unacceptable pressure, is perhaps greater. But what seems important to me, in any case, is that the problem must be discussed separately from the euthanasia problem of the sick person. Yeah, that's so good. 
or am I overestimating the number of old people with the concerns these comments are about? No, he's not over. I don't think he's overestimating it. And I think it's such a perceptive comment that's been made and the letter itself had such an impact and so it should have had because it was really, I think, spelling it out probably for the first time that this was an issue that we as a society were going to have to confront. And those comments about suicide of elderly people, I think, are very relevant today, whereas we see almost a fanatical uh, attempt to try and lower the suicide rate and they get the figures get published and when the figures of elderly people suiciding get published there's usually as an associated comments by our various authorities about how we must stop this whereas I would see I would see and I suspect Hugh Drion would see that the suicide rates amongst elderly people is is something that one should almost be comfortable with because what it's showing is that people elderly people are taking the step themselves and succeeding, and we should welcome that, not do everything we can to frustrate their plans. Now, what's incredible about this letter is that he wrote it 30 years ago. It's plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. I mean, it's, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's, it's depressing. It's, it's encouraging that it was written 30 years ago, but it's depressing that we're still having the same conversation and that the mainstream discourse about assisted dying, voluntary euthanasia, is still bogged down in this medical terminology. You must be terminally ill, about to drop dead within six six months, and that's that's it. That's the framework. Yes, so we can only look forward to a time when you can go to your vending machine, fill out your little questionnaire to prove you're mentally and of sound mind and have issued your quietest pill. That's what I would like to see for the future. Is that the Martin Amos um, suicide booth on every corner? It's well. The, the, it's Martin Amos's suicide booth on every corner. There's also one episode of The Simpsons, which I think had had the same uh, machine. Uh, we're also looking at films such as uh, the uh, such as the. Oh, what is it? Oh, is that the Charlton Heston film, Soylent Green? Soylent Green, yeah. Which I think was it was very. Uh, again, it was put in this idea of a future which none of us should want. But when you look at the film now some many years after it was made, it doesn't look all that bad. You go to a very nice place. Someone gives you the option to have the colours you like and the sounds and sights that you've always dreamed of and you rest, sit back and you have that perfect death. I see Sarko as providing such an option for the future and where the person themselves are totally in control of taking that step. Thank you, Philip. All right, on the 30th anniversary of Hugh Drion's famous letter, that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back in November with another Exit podcast. So thank you for listening. If you can catch up on all the past podcasts on the peacefulpillhandbook.com website, we'll see you again. Bye for now. 